This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. begin uh, this message with our word of the week. It's one of the things we do here every week. We have a word of the week. If you don't learn anything else, you're going to learn at least one word, right? So um, here, our word of the week. It's one you've actually likely heard before. It's anti-Semitic. Okay, now anti-Semitic, this term means hostile to or prejudiced against Jewish people hostile to or prejudiced against Jewish people. Now, knowing you folks, (laughs) I don't think any of y'all fit this description. I don't fit this description. But, and this is a big but, um, but I want to suggest to you that most evangelicals, most people within evangelical tribes or circles have been taught somewhere along the way to read the scriptures with somewhat of an anti-Semitic tense that may seem hard to believe. But believe it or not, it runs under the cover and maybe through the veins of some of evangelicalism, some corners of evangelicalism. In my estimation, there are two ways that this tends to happen. There's a lot of ways it happens, but there's two ways that it tends to happen. One is that evangelicals strive to make Jesus absolutely different than any Jewish person of his day or even any Jew down through history. He was different in some ways, but not absolutely different. He was still a Jew in the first century. The second, this is actually a byproduct of the the first point, Um, is that evangelicals have tended to pit the New Testament against the Old Testament in many ways. And one very common way of doing this is trying to force every verse in the Old Testament to be about Jesus. You see, in doing this, it's not simply enough for the Old Testament to be the Old Testament. It has to be about Jesus. We're going to force it to be all about Jesus. To me, that's very problematic. And believe it or not, it actually has an anti-Semitic flavor to it. Another way this happens is when we act as if the New Testament is obsessed with grace, the grace of God, the love of God. We act like the New Testament's obsessed with grace, but the Old Testament was obsessed with this burdensome law. The reality is this. Both the Old Testament and the New Testaments are very interested in grace and law. (laughs) Some have even gone as far as to suggest that Christians have no need of the Old Testament. We were um, having a deep group a couple weeks ago, and Gavin was sharing a story at at the deep group about uh, his former church in Texas, and there was this one member who was trying to push this view on the congregation. We don't even need the Old Testament. Let's get rid of it. (laughs) 
Um, and it stems right from this view that the law was bad. The law is problematic. The law is a curse. And for me, in my view, this is entirely wrong-headed. It's very problematic. It's an interpretive approach that at its core actually is quite anti-Semitic. And so the reason I'm starting with this today is because our focal passage, which is Mark 2, 18 to 28, is a passage that most people read or many people read and interpret through this lens in this way, in an anti-Semitic kind of fashion. I want to reframe today the entire discussion. I want to reframe the discussion entirely. And I want to invite y'all to maybe rethink these verses yourself if you've ever encountered someone who teaches them in this way. You see, in today's verses, we'll read about uh, new wine being put into old wineskins. We'll read about new clothes being ripped up to make patches for old ones and so on. And so for as long as I've been a Christian, more than 20 years, I've heard people make the argument that, you know, with such analogies, when they're reading this focal pass, Jesus, he's actually distancing himself, they say, from his Jewish roots, distancing himself from the law and distancing himself from John the baptizer, his mentor. And they'll say things like this, Jesus is the new who's bringing in the new. While all that old should sort of be left behind, discarded. And I want to suggest to you again that such an interpretation is quite problematic. It actually misses the entire point of the passage. When seen correctly, what Jesus says in today's verses should hit home for us and set us on a path to do what we're supposed to do. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to turn to Mark 2, 18 to 28. And it begins this way. This Mark, the narrator, starts us off. He says, and the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, this is the, the scribes are now coming, and they're saying to Jesus, for what reason? are the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fasting, but your disciples are not fasting. And so let's just reset the stage really quickly here. All right, so remember firstly that this is all taking place in Jesus' house. Yes, Jesus had a house. This is all taking place inside Jesus' house. The house where the roof was potentially or partially ripped off. You remember that, they lowered uh, the boy through. The, the house that Jesus, after that scene, he went and he called uh, Levi Matthew, who was working as a toll collector on the Wiamaris, the that road, the Wiamaris, and uh, he called other toll collectors too. And he says, y'all, come to my house. I'm throwing a party. Party at my house, woo, right? And all these people follow Jesus to his house. And so the verse actually just before this one, and in addition to this one, tells us, the guests at the party, who's on the guest list, right? The VIPs. So uh, we have Jesus there, of course, it's his house, his disciples. We have Levi, Levi Matthew, who's a toll collector. We have a bunch of other toll collectors. We have some sinners. That's kind of like code word for sick people. Um, we have some Pharisees. We have disciples of John, which Jesus, remember, he was a disciple of John and um, disciples of some of the leaders of the Pharisees. And so it seems like a packed house. 
when Jesus was throwing a party, <laughs> it seemed like everyone wanted to be there. And so interestingly, this party that Jesus is throwing, he's probably throwing a party on a Monday night, maybe a Thursday night. And we know that because among the Pharisees, uh, there were two days out of each week that they fasted, Mondays and Thursdays. And according to the story, however, Jesus and some of his disciples are not fasting. The Pharisees show up to the party and they're fasting. They're kind of like, <laughs> they're kind of like the vegans of that day. They make everything complicated for everybody else, right? They show up to the party and they're fasting. But Jesus and his disciples are at the party on Monday or Thursday and they're not fasting. And some of John's disciples, perhaps those who have now started following Jesus since John's in prison, they're also there. And the Pharisees, the, the scribes, they begin, the scribes rather, they begin interrogating Jesus. You know, why aren't you fasting? And why aren't your disciples fasting? But we need to know, y'all, this is much more than a question about fasting. It's so much more. Really, the heart of the question under the question is Jesus. Yo, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to? You see, Jesus was himself a disciple of John. And if that's the case, why isn't he fasting like the other disciples of John who were with him? And Jesus, you know, he had affinities, theological and religious affinities with the Pharisees. If that's the case, why isn't he fasting like the Pharisees? Jesus, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? And there's more still. The, the fact that the religious leaders immediately describes, the, immediately they, they come to Jesus, the first thing they say to him at the party is something about John the baptizer. <laughs> and Levy, of course, he's right there. So this is an attempt to incriminate Jesus, you see. Jesus, Levy, you know Jesus. Levy works with Herod Antipas. In Herod Antipas, in prison, your cousin John. Yet you're working with Levy. That's a disgrace to your mentor, John. <laughs> you, you shouldn't be calling Levy. You shouldn't be consorting with him. You should be rejecting him. You are supposed to reject him. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do, Jesus? And Jesus, he gives this response. It's an entire string of little parables. He's going to answer the question with a string of parables. Essentially, he's going to make the point like 10 times almost in 10 different ways. So he's going to say, look, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. Doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And he's going to make this counterpoint by insinuation. Y'all are not doing what y'all supposed to be doing. And that's the heart of this passage today. Jesus doing what he's supposed to, and we shall see that a question arises for us. Are we doing what we're supposed to? Us in this room, are we doing what we're supposed to? As a congregation, as a local people of God, are we doing what we're supposed to? As individuals, are we doing what we're supposed to? Right now, in this life, Am I doing what I'm supposed to? Are you doing what you're supposed to? And here's the thing. A lot of Christians really struggle with this matter. 
They wonder, how do I know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And I have to tell you, as I studied and prepared this week, I took great heart because these verses give us the answer. They tell us how to know if we're doing what we're supposed to. I mean, imagine that, right? The scripture's telling us how to know if we're doing what we're supposed to. People go to tarot card readers. People will go to crystal ball readers. People read self-help books. People do all kinds of stuff to try to figure out what they should be doing, what they're supposed to be doing. And the reality is Mark 2, 18 to 28 tells us. It's right here. Sounds pretty good, right? So we're gonna have a look at this as we, as we go through. Actually, before we go on to the next verse, 219, we're gonna step back one verse. We, we looked at this last time we were in Mark. Mark 2.17, and I want to bring back to mind a parable that Jesus gives here. It says this, the strong have no need of a doctor. You could maybe say the healthy, but the strong have no need of a doctor, but those having it badly do. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now remember, the point in all of this, y'all, is Jesus doing what he's supposed to. The scribes think he's not. He's called Levy, and he's working with him. He's betrayed John, Levy has. Jesus is not keeping the fasts. And so from the scribe's perspective, from the religious official's perspective, Jesus isn't doing what he's supposed to. Yet from Jesus' own perspective, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to. And so we have this parable here. A parable, by the way, is a short story or analogy that's usually rooted in a real-life example. That's what a parable is. And if we put this in the form of a question, that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to reorganize this all into the form of a question. It comes off like this. What's a doctor supposed to do? Help the healthy or heal the sick? Answer, heal the sick. A doctor who heals the sick is doing what he's supposed to. First parable, right there. Now, let's get back to our, our focal passage today. We're going to look at 19 and 20 here. And they say this. And Jesus said to them, and Jesus speaks, the sons of the bridegroom are not able, at the time which the bridegroom is with them, to fast, are they? Implied answer, no. As long as they have time that the bridegroom is with them, they are not able to fast. But days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken up from them. And then they'll fast in those days. And so immediately after this parable, Jesus is going to give another one. But here we have a parable. All right? I actually want us to, let's just think about this one. Again, remember. Remember, the point has to do, is Jesus doing what he's supposed to? That's the whole point as we go today. The first example had to do with a doctor doing what he's supposed to, healing the sick. Here, Jesus gives a completely different parable, a different illustration. He's talking about a bridegroom at his wedding. The bridegroom, he's supposed to throw a party, have a celebration, and rejoice with his guests. And Jesus' analogy in the form of a question, if we do it that way, is like this. Y'all, what's a bridegroom supposed to do at his wedding celebration? Mourn and fast or feast? 
Answer, feast. And Jesus essentially says, is saying right now, I'm like a bridegroom. We're in my house. I'm throwing a feast in my house. If that's cause for you Pharisees, you scribes, whoever to, to mourn and fast, that's on y'all. I'm celebrating. Get this party started, right? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Just like my father celebrates the recovery of one lost sheep. I'm celebrating the recovery of this lost sheep right here, Levy Matthew. We're celebrating. But that's not enough. Jesus continues with another parable. He says this, no one, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth upon an old garment. Otherwise, straight away, the fullness lifts up from it. The new from the old and the terror becomes worse. Now, this is kind of wordy. I realize this is a little bit hard to understand. Um, and it makes it, doesn't make it easier, right? That these are just parables stacked right on top of each other. It can be kind of confusing. But if we do what we've been doing, just put it in the form of a question, it becomes way easier to get what's going on, what's said. Essentially, Jesus is asking here, hey, if an old shirt tears, it gets a hole in it. What's a seamstress supposed to do? Rip apart a new shirt and sew part of that onto the old? No, that would then end up destroying both. What's a seamstress to do? Tear clothing or mend it? Answer, mend, mend. What's a doctor supposed to do? Heal. What's a bridegroom supposed to do? Feast. What's a seamstress supposed to do? Mend. You see what's happening. Again, Jesus isn't done. He isn't done. He has more parables left in the tank, a bunch more. He says this, and no one throws new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, straight away the wine bursts the wineskins. Both the wine is destroyed and the wineskins. But the new wine is thrown into new wineskins. The name for somebody who handles wine, is like storing wine, is a vintner. That could have been our word of the week as well. A vintner. Okay, and so in this parable, if we turn it into a question, it might sound like this. What's a vintner supposed to do? Misstore wine or properly store wine? Answer, properly store wine. New wine goes into new wineskins. Old wine goes into old wineskins. A vintner should know this stuff. It's his profession. It's what he's supposed to do. Store the wine properly. In our next verse, there's actually a, a scene shift. We're going to go straight from this party at Jesus' house to a fasting day for the Pharisees. It's actually a Sabbath day. Now, before we read this, let me just remind you, this story is patently not about Jesus undermining the law. He never does that in his life. We shouldn't read it that way. This is about Jesus and others doing what they're supposed to. Let's read. And on the Sabbaths, he happened to walk along through the grain fields. And his disciples began on the way to work at tilling stalks. And here's a question. Is a stalk of grain supposed to feed people or starve people? Answer, feed them. 
for the Pharisees, right? Just walking some distance on a Sabbath, they could have considered that work. Tilling stalks, plucking grain on a Sabbath could be considered work too. And so this is a problem, again, for the religious officials, the Pharisees, that Jesus and his disciples are doing this. So here's how they reply. And the Pharisees kept, they were kept, kept saying to him, that's to Jesus, look, why, why are they working on the Sabbaths, which is not lawful or which is not permitted? <laughs> and you guess what comes next? Jesus responds in the form of a parable. He says, and he says to them, have you never read? Why did David work when he had a need and he himself was hungry and those with him? So he's going back to the Old Testament here, not getting rid of it. He's going back to it to prove his point. How did he, that is David, enter into the house of God with regard to Abiathar of the chief priest and the loaves of consecration? He ate that which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And he gave also to those with him. So again, Jesus is appealing to a real life story, y'all. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I need, to, I do need, to, I do feel like I need to let y'all know this right here, this verse, these right here, these two verses, skeptics of Christianity, um, they're going to point to these two verses as one of the, or two verses in the scriptures that are historically erroneous. And so while people are going to say scriptures are erroneous, Mark's made an error here or Jesus, he's also made an error by saying this. This is one section that people point to a lot to cast dispersions on Scripture. Jesus made an error. Oh, he, he got his history wrong. Jesus got it. Now, let me say this. Hear me loud and clear when I say this. Hey, if Jesus got a historical date wrong, fine. Fine. When we talk about Jesus being perfect, we're, we're talking about a sinless life. Not whether he nailed all the answers at trivia night. That's not what we're talking about. If Jesus got the, the story, the historical fact wrong, fine. It says literally nothing about him being God or human or anything else. Nevertheless, I don't think he got it wrong here. He got it right. He nailed it. The parable he's talking about goes back to 1 Samuel 21, okay? And there, David, he enters into the house of God, and he eats the consecrated bread in the house of God, and he gives it to the people with him. And at that time, there was this guy named Ahimelech, not Abiathar, but Ahimelech. And Ahimelech was the chief priest at that time when David entered the house of God. Abiathar doesn't come until a chapter later in Samuel, 1 Samuel 22. So people point to this like, hey, look, Mark or, or Jesus, they made errors. <laughs> it's, it's grasping at straws. It's a stupid view of Jesus. It's all very, very easily explained. There are two parts to it. One's contextual, one's language-based. First, if you know that Ahimelech, who was the chief priest, is the father of Abiathar, oh, easily solved. Sons usually did what their fathers did. Although we know in our story that Levi Matthew didn't do what his father was doing. Anyhow, Ahimelech is a chief priest. That means Abiathar, his son, was the chief priest in training. 
And so when David shows up to the house of God where Ahimelech, the chief priest, is, well, Abiathar, who's chief priest in training, is also there. And so it makes sense. If we couple this with translation, a translation explanation, which I'm not going to go into, then we see there's no errors going on here. Many English translations are actually off here. I'm sorry to say that, but they are. They'll say, in the days of Abiathar. And if your English translation says that, I would challenge it. They'll say, at the time of Abiathar. I would challenge that. I think it's off. The better translation with regard to Abiathar of the chief priest. Abiathar of the chief priests. I could go way deeper. I'm not going to do the syntax and grammar argument, but you can see the translation here. Frankly, it makes sense. I don't think there's any errors here, no problems. And so with this parable, if we see it from the standpoint of a question, the, the question is simply this. When David entered in the house of God with Ahimelech, Abiathar was there, what was David supposed to do? Was he supposed to starve or ask the chief priest to eat? Answer, ask the chief priest to eat. And what was the chief priest supposed to do? Starve God's people or serve God's people? Answer, serve, serve God's people. And so with this analogy, Jesus is making the point. Look, David, Ahimelech, Abiathar, they were all doing exactly what they were all supposed to do in that situation. And he'll drive the point home with one more parable. He says this. He said to them, Jesus, the Sabbath occurs for humanity and humanity not for the Sabbath. And so the son of humanity, some translations say son of man, that's fine. Son of humanity is better. And so the son of humanity is Lord also of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, they they look at Jesus again as if he's not doing what he's supposed to. They view the Sabbath as a rule meant to be followed, you see. Jesus, on the other hand, views the Sabbath not as a rule to be followed, but a gift from God, meant to be restorative and life-giving to humanity. Put in the form of a question, what's a Sabbath supposed to do? Burden people or be life-giving? Answer, life-giving. And that leads right into this last parable. Put in the form of a question. It sounds like this. What's the son of humanity supposed to do? Call some of humanity to himself or call all of humanity to himself, including Levi? Answer, call all of humanity. And so you see, with each parable, Jesus reiterates his overarching point. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, just like they were all doing what they were supposed to be doing. He reiterates the point nearly 10 times in these verses. He gives example after example. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it points out that the officials, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm going to come back to this in just a second. But I want to make sure we don't miss something important here. Jesus is slam. Jesus is dis. You see how in, in 25, if we, we go back here, when he starts this story about David, he asks the scribes a question. He says, have you never read or have you all never read? Now, this is the scribes. That was their job, to read. 
That was their literally their vocation, their job. It's 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 a this. It's kind of like asking a mechanic, hey, right, you ever worked on a car? That's probably gonna be offensive to the mechanic or the plumber. Have you actually ever plumbed something? Whatever the have you ever fixed a pipe? It's gonna it's gonna like offend the plumber. You ever fixed a leak? That'd be that'd be how you ask. Or an athlete. Dude, have you never trained? Never shot a ball? Do you know how to catch? Right? You guys, you scribes, you're supposed to read and interpret the law of God. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? When Jesus calls Levi, he follows. He's doing what he's supposed to, Levi. When Jesus calls the four fishermen earlier in Mark, they follow. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And when the son of humanity comes and he calls humanity to follow him, to walk the roads and get the dust of their rabbi all over him, that's what they should do. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. And so in Jesus' day, when you followed a rabbi, you'd be his student for a while. And then you would eventually move on and become your own rabbi and get your own students. But this is one of those places where Jesus did things a little bit differently. When you were Jesus' disciple, you were to never leave your rabbi. And you were to never, and if you were his disciple, you were to never try to become better than your rabbi and supplant or replace your rabbi. When you were his disciple... You knew, actually, that you might have to leave people and leave things. You might have to leave former ways of life. You might have to suffer and even die. When you were his disciple, the forgiveness of sins is directly linked to that. Your salvation is directly linked to you being his disciple, ongoing. And hear me when I say this. None of that has changed. And thousands of years, none of that has changed. Still the case. You know, we get this line in the Gospels about when the disciples go somewhere and they aren't welcome, they should shake the dust off their sandals and move on. But during this time too, there was another saying. It had to do with following your rabbi. And it was like this idea that you should follow so closely to your rabbi that you are covered in his dust. It gets kind of close to uh, 1 John 2, 6, that whoever claims to live in him must walk as he did. Following Jesus isn't easy. It's tough. It's dirty. It's dusty. We should be covered in his dust. If we're not following close enough to get dusty, we're not following close enough. We're not doing what we're supposed to. So how about you? You got any Jesus dust on you? Or are you clean? Maybe you're not trying to follow the rabbi. Something I see a lot is that maybe you're the one trying to lead the rabbi. (laughs) You're trying to do it alone your way how you want. Maybe you're being lazy and you just want the rabbi to carry you footprints in the sand. Maybe you're trying to walk beside him all the time, being equal, instead of following. Oh, peace, Omu, get behind me, he says. We're not supposed to be in front. We're not supposed to be equal. 
We're not supposed to be carried and babied all the time. We're supposed to follow. Get covered in his dust. You know, I hear people talk about their call all the time. Ah, I get so weary of it. (laughs) Jesus called me to do this. God called me to do this. I think God's calling me to go to this place. I sense God's call in my life in this direction. I get so tired of hearing it. We all need this reminder. Jesus' call, first and foremost, isn't to a job. It isn't to a place. It isn't to a vocation. It isn't to a thing. Jesus' call, above all else, is simply to him. And out of that call comes the call to follow him and get covered in his dust. Period. Facts. Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? We often go down roads that we're not supposed to be on. We think we're supposed to be on it, but we shouldn't. We often get in relationships that we think we're supposed to, but we shouldn't. We often spend on things we think are good, we're supposed to, but we shouldn't. We often think we're doing right, but we're actually doing wrong. Are we doing what we're supposed to? Am I doing what I'm supposed to? Are you doing what you're supposed to? Jesus does what he's supposed to. His disciples, at least at this point in the story, are doing what they're supposed to. And it raises the question I asked earlier, how do we know what we're supposed to do? I thought a lot about that this week, and as I was studying these verses, it became very, very clear to me, very apparent. When we're faced with a decision in life, when we have choices or a choice to make in life, when there's options before us, when we're unclear or confused, when we need to act, how do we know if it's what we're supposed to do or not? Too easy, two very easy questions we can ask ourselves that come directly from this passage. First, will this improve my walk with Jesus? And two, Will it make me more like Jesus? So, do you have a choice to make in your life at this point? I don't know, do you? Uh, if you, if you do, then you ask yourself those two questions. Is this gonna, if I do this, if I go this route, choose this thing, is it gonna improve my walk with Jesus and will it make me more like him? And if you can answer no to either of those two questions, then don't do it. If you answer, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm unsure, then don't do it. You're not supposed to do it. It's not what you're supposed to do. If you can ask those two questions and in all honesty, like your most honest of honest inside your being, right? And in all honesty, without waffling, without manipulating, trying to twist it, without bending the truth, if you can ask those and say, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna tighten my walk with Jesus and make me more like him, then do it. Should I go here? Hey, it's gonna improve my walk with Jesus and make me more like him? Yeah, I'm supposed to go here. Should I be with this person or should I be with this group of people? It's gonna tighten my walk with Jesus, make me more like him? Yeah, I should do it. No, I shouldn't do it. 
Will it improve my walk and make me more like him? Should I take this job? Gonna make me tighten my walk with Jesus, make me more like him? No, don't do it. <sighs> Should I watch this? Tighten my walk with Jesus, make me more like him? Maybe, yeah, I probably shouldn't do it. Eat this, drink this, listen to this, do this, do this, do that. Tighten my walk with Jesus, make me more like him? Will I emerge from this experience covered in the dust of Rabbi Jesus or not? That <laughs> brings us to this week's bottom line. Doing what you're supposed to do always looks like following Jesus and becoming more like him. It's always the case. 100% of the time, it's the case. If what you're doing is causing you to just be more of you, Wrong answer. If what you're doing is causing you to be selfish, wrong answer. If what you're doing orbits around your feelings and no one else's, probably wrong answer. If what you're doing is half-hearted, half-energetic, half-minded, half-spirit, half-self-interest, half, wrong answer. If what you're doing it's complaining all the time. <clears throat> Wrong answer. <laughs> if what you're doing is contributing to problems, but not offering help and solutions, wrong answer. <laughs> if what you're doing is causing others not to follow Jesus and become more like him, wrong answer. What's a doctor supposed to do? Heal. What's a bridegroom supposed to do? Feast. What's a seamstress supposed to do? Mend. What's a vintner supposed to do? Store properly. What's a chief priest supposed to do? Serve God's people. What's a Sabbath supposed to do? Provide rest and life. What's a son of humanity supposed to do? Call all humanity to himself. What's a Christian supposed to do? Follow Jesus and become more like him. And that's the charge today. Follow Jesus and become more like him. Follow Jesus and become more like him. Follow Jesus. Become more like him. Amen.